Pudhang dhammang sangkhang namasam. During the time that Ajahn Kevali was staying with us here, he and I put together the issue of the Forasanga calendar that will be printed for the year 2025. It marks the 50th anniversary of, of Wat Bhananaya Chart, and, and as is obviously fitting for such an occasion, we used some quotes from Tanaja Chah's teachings, and, and there's one quote there in particular, Ajahn Chah is saying, in translation anyway, in English, I don't know what the original Thai was, there is nothing better than the practice of Dhamma. Dhamma is the supporter of the whole world. People are confused these days because they don't know Dhamma. If you have Dhamma, then you are content. As you expect, that's, that's a ringing endorsement of the practice of Dhamma. And certainly the reference to contentment there is very attractive. It's everybody wants contentment and the world is not contented. Although, saying that, I, a long-time friend and supporter of the monastery mentioned to me how the encouragement to be contented doesn't always go down very well with people because they look at the world and, and worry so much about what a mess things are in and they think that being contented is irresponsible. And we shouldn't be contented. We, we should be upset about the political situation, economic situation, environmental situation. I wouldn't dismiss their concern because being blasé about these tragic examples of desperately imbalanced human beings and ignoring it is not being responsible. It's not dhamma to ignore the consequences of human misconduct and rather to see it and then see what we can do about it. That, that's appropriate. However, being lost in our reactions, wringing our hands and wailing about how it shouldn't be this way, does that really help? And from a Dhamma perspective, it's understandable that we feel sad, disturbed by the witnessing of the pain that there is around. If we get lost in that, then that limits what we can do about it. And so this is why I've often mentioned this image of awareness as being the ocean, whereby on the surface of the ocean it can be quite tumultuous. At the same time, exactly the same time, in the same ocean, in the same place, in the depths it's perfectly still. And so this, I would suggest, is the kind of contentment that the invitation to practice Dhamma is talking about. It's equipping ourselves with the agility of attention and the interest in discovering what's possible.
with this human existence? Is it possible to cultivate our attention in a way whereby we can touch into the depths of awareness that refresh us and renew us and help clarify our understanding of life at the same time as functioning in a feeling-sensitive way, participating in, in life. Is that possible? In regards to this quote from Ajahn Chah's teachings, there's nothing better than the practice of Dhamma. The Dhamma supports the whole world. People are confused these days because they don't know Dhamma. If you have Dhamma, then you will be content. So what is the what is the study and practice of this Dhamma? And it does go in that sequence, the study and the practice. And what's referred to in Pali is the Pariyati level of practice, the study about Dhamma, and then the Patipati, the actual practice, the application of attention. So starting, though, with study and equipping ourselves with the right understanding, the right information. And the Buddha's recommendation, as many of you will be familiar with what's referred to as the Bodhipakya Dhamma, the 37 Bodhipakya Dhamma, the Buddha encouraged us to study these teachings. There's lots of interesting phenomena around which we could be studying. However, it's not all relevant if awakening is the goal, the requisites for awakening or the Bodhipakya Dhamma, this is relevant. These 37 Dhammas are relevant to the pursuit of awakening and the Buddha encourages us to study, to investigate these teachings and the four foundations of mindfulness, the four right efforts, the four bases of power, the five spiritual faculties, the five spiritual competences, the seven factors of enlightenment, the Eightfold Path, these, these 37 aspects of the Buddha's teachings. Again, the Buddha himself encouraged us to study, to, to really look into. And he didn't, though, suggest that studying about the 37 Bodhipakya Dhammas is enough. And quite the opposite. It does need to go to the next level. And so... Yes, we start off with study and then we are encouraged to go deeper. And what does that actually mean? If all we do is remain on the conceptual level, the level of discriminative intelligence, which we, we all have been programmed to be very fond of, that's generally what most of us are conditioned in when we go to school, go to university and we love our discriminative intelligence. And however, that's not going to give us enough information. Again, quoting Ajahn Chah, I think he was talking to his Western disciples at the time when, when he said, the reason you guys don't know anything is because you know so much. And what he was talking about was you don't know anything directly because you know about so much. Knowing about the 37 Bodhipakya Dhammas, you can, if you cling to that, that can just become an obstruction actually in itself. And you're knowing about, knowing how to recite 
Eightfold Path, and Sama, Ditti Sama, Sankhava Sama, Vajra Sama, Kamata Sama, Ajiva Sama, Vayama Sama, Sati Sama, Samadhi. Oh, I know the Eightfold Path. That is knowing about the Eightfold Path. Like, you you might know, like for instance, the word, in English, the word pain. Pain, we know that word means all of us here speak English. Some of us speak Thai, and so the Thai word for pain is chep or bort. Yeah. doesn't sound anything like pain. Those of you who don't speak Thai don't have a clue what chep means. Or Italian, if you speak Italian, dolore. Knowing about something is not the same thing as knowing it. And as mentioning this by way of example, that we enjoy so much knowing about things and, and we talk a lot about the problems of life, the difficulties, the social, the political, the environmental, the economic uh, issues. And we think so much about it. Do we have the skill to go beyond thinking and investigate more deeply? Because there's no end to talking, there's no end to thinking. Well, if that's all we do, there's no end to it. However, the Buddha wanted us, and the teachers want us to understand that we can go beyond that. We can cultivate what I refer to as unitive intelligence, discriminative intelligence. That's one thing that's definitely got its place. Discriminative intelligence is marvelous and has all sorts of useful applications. What about unitive intelligence? What about... What about the capacity to simply appreciate something, to quietly appreciate something? Are we able in this area, or do all we do is think? Reflecting on this theme the other day, I, what came to my mind is my education in Morrinsville College about 60 years ago. We had a course, if I remember correctly, Music Appreciation taught by Mr. Barnes. I think once a week we would go to this room. I can still remember the room we would go to and we would have a class in music appreciation. What a great idea that is. And I, I really hope that at Morrinsville College and all colleges that they still have such classes, not just teaching science and mathematics. Science and mathematics, yes, great, amazing definitely have their place. However, can we disengage from always analyzing and discriminating and picking and choosing and taking sides? Or has it happened that our love of the good feeling that comes from conceptual understanding has taken over and we become compulsive? And if we bring this compulsive thinking attitude to our spiritual life, it can really be an obstruction. Okay. You know, not really do I. I meet people who've been meditating for years and, and they're regularly complaining and criticizing themselves. Despite all the good effort they're making, keeping precepts, sitting meditation regularly, and, and still not, it seems, being nourished by their good effort. It's like they don't really appreciate, they don't have appreciative awareness 
may have discriminative intelligence, but not unitive intelligence, it seems to me. So what do we do about it? Um, this compulsive taking sides and judging and discriminating, it can overshadow the goodness of life. It can obstruct potentials for studying, for learning, for investigating, if all, we're always up in our head comparing. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had that experience of going to a, a, a restaurant or a cafe and sitting down with somebody there and, and the coffee arrives and the person starts comparing the coffee. Oh, this coffee's not as good as the last cafe we went to. Or, you know, is that constructive or is that compulsive? So compulsively comparing... I think is something that we could all usefully look at and see, are we using our discriminative intelligence or are we being addicted to it and being used by it? Right. In the monastery, we have a particular training which directly addresses this. Some of you might have noticed that at the mealtime, the monks go through the, the line in the kitchen and the cooks, the lay supporters have generously and prepared all these pots and dishes and trays of food and then the monks take it and take a, a scoop of this, a ladle of that, a slice of this, a piece of that and put it all in the one bowl and this is observing what in Buddhist monastic speak is called the one bowl eater's practice. It's, it's a specific ascetic practice that the Buddha encouraged. He didn't oblige people to keep it. Ajahn Chah did. Ajahn Chah did oblige monks to observe the one bowl eater's practice. In other words, you can't put your cookies in your bowl lid. All your food, if you're going to eat it, it's got to go in the bowl. And you've got a bowl lid there, you think, well, why can't I put my cookies and things in my bowl and have a separate little dish with the fruit salad in it? And Ajahn Chah insisted on the one bowl eater's practice. And in this monastery, I insist on it for the monks as well. And we're not allowed to insist on it with some monk who arrives here and then we say, you've got to keep this ascetic practice. That's not allowed, that's not permitted, you can't enforce uh, ascetic practices on people. However, if I know some monk wants to come and live here, then what we can do is send them the training manual in advance and say, if you want to live in this monastery, you're obliged to observe the one bowl eater's practice. And it's not just because Ajmanindra is a control freak, he, he is probably a bit of a control freak. The justification for this practice is in part because this addiction to always taking sides, to, to comparing, to following our addiction to preferences is an obstruction to practice. It's a real obstruction. And, and if you read the traditional commentaries in Theravada Buddhism, you see it specifically addresses this one bowl eater's practice, gives you the ability, it suggests, to listen to Dhamma from any teacher without being concerned about their delivery or their appearance. In other words, you, you hone in on the message, which of course surely is the point of the teaching. Is this message, this Dhamma teaching relevant? Is it applicable? Can I use this? That's what the point. However, if we are still not addicted to our preferences, then maybe we go up into our heads and we go, oh, I don't like this, I don't agree with that, and oh, we could have said that better, and the compulsive discriminating mind takes over. So just by way of an example, I'm not suggesting that everybody takes on the one bowl eaters practice, not at all. 
However, to use it as an example, that there is something we can do about our addiction to our preferences. And you can, by the way, and you might have observed this, that you can also become addicted to ascetic practices. And, and that's missing the point. That's not what's being aimed at. And the point of this ascetic practice is to bring up to, into awareness the objection we have to not getting my way. I don't want to mix my curries with my custard. Why can't I have my ice cream separate? I don't want to mix it with my vegetables. And that is my way. We want to see that. I want it like this. However, as I was just saying there, we can also become addicted to ascetic practices. And there was, in fact, a, a uh, previous senior incumbent here, this many years ago now, who was exceedingly fond of this ascetic practice and he took it to a bit of an extreme whereby he would have all the pots of food that would be prepared brought in and then he'd just pour them all into a bucket and then stir the bucket and then pass the bucket down the line. And that didn't go down very well, as you can imagine. It also didn't go down very well with Ajahn Sumato, who at Amarawati got to hear about it and and on this senior incumbent's birthday, Ajahn Sumato sent up a, a box of beautiful chocolates with a note written on it, this is not for the bucket. Um, and I think that was the end of the bucket practice, and quite rightly so. So getting back to this reflection on, are we so identified with our discriminative intelligence, are we so fond of our ability to analyze and discriminate that it's becoming an obstruction, it's taking over and spoiling things. You can look in your own practice and for instance if you sitting meditation and you're feeling just great, not attain some amazing transcendent state, just feeling balanced, feeling settled, feeling calm, this is what you meditate for. This is what you want. Can you appreciate this for what it is? Can you just simply be nourished by it, refreshed by it, meet it, allow it? Or does the energy go up into your head? Oh, this is a very good meditation. I'm doing very well. This is much better than the last meditation I did. I hope I get this meditation again when I sit tomorrow. If it's the latter, well, that is an overactive left brain, if we want to use that language. And neuroscientists talk about the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere. And that discriminative intelligence is probably the activity of an overactive left brain. And we need to do something about it. Because if that's what we do when the mind is peaceful and our meditation is the way we want it to be, then guess what? <laughs> you know what I'm going to say? That when the next day you sit and you're looking forward to another rewarding, inspiring, refreshing meditation and it just doesn't happen, it's just your mind is all over the place and yabba, 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 just restless and can't settle and and then the mind starts it shouldn't be this way after all these years of praise what's wrong with me what am I doing wrong you know, thinking 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 and comparing and 
Yes, that was like this. Compulsively thinking spoils it. You're making the effort. Can you still appreciate the good effort you're making? Or listening to a Dhamma talk. Can you appreciate the effort that the speaker is making to share something that they hope will be useful? This is why we're, we're encouraged in listening to Dhamma to listen from the heart, not to listen from the head. Our head is chock-a-block full of information and if we listen from our heads we can be comparing and oh that teacher said that and oh he could have described this more clearly and why doesn't he mention that and oh I'm not sure that's in the scriptures and and anyway he's going on for far too long or, or she's going on for far too long my goodness this stomach talk is so boring and what's all that about that is not appreciative awareness that's the compulsive, discriminating mind, taking sides. I received an email not so long ago from somebody who was critiquing a Dhamma talk I gave. And I, I can't remember exactly now what the talk was about. However, I do remember that in the, as part of this talk, I was referencing conventional theistic religion and how, although it's true that criticism for conventional theistic religion that is often warranted in, in all sorts of areas, it has, to a degree, served to protect people from becoming totally self-inflated. They believed that they were accountable to a higher law. There was a higher authority, which, which meant they didn't take themselves and their own views and opinions too seriously. And Now, I'm not, and wasn't, endorsing, reverting to um, theistic religious beliefs and suggesting that that's a solution to the crises that human society are facing. Rather, I was pointing to this, this function of conventional religion and how useful that was. The person listening to the talk, it seemed, must have missed that point. And, and that's one of the risks, again, of if we don't know, if we don't prepare ourselves and train ourselves to simply appreciate. Not just talking about appreciating beauty or joy or pleasure. The pleasure of an agreeable meditation session. Also, appreciating the actuality of pain. Pain is information, like if you look at the world and you feel the pain of the, the tragedies that are taking place and the sadness that occurs. Can we appreciate what sadness is and how it's an aspect of compassion and contribute compassion to the world? Or are we still so addicted to our discriminative intelligence and we leave that feeling of sadness and the potential it has for us to dwell in compassion, leave it behind in our hearts and go up into our heads and, and start feeding this commentary about how it shouldn't be this way. How can human beings behave like this? And, and what can we do about it? And thinking, 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 
as if that's the only way of studying experience. Certainly, yes, in the beginning, the pariyati level, the study level, we learn about the the, the 37 bodhipakya dhammas, the the three lots of four, the two lots of five, the seven and the eight, and study these and remembering them and investigating them. Or that other list that I'm particularly fond of, it's the eight points that the Buddha gave to the first Buddhist nun, Venerable Mahapajapati Bhikkhuni, and she was wanting a a praise of the Buddha's teachings. What is, how can I know what is Dhamma? So the Buddha gave these eight points to to remember. He said, that which accords with this is Dhamma. That which doesn't accord with this is not Dhamma. And so these eight points of dispassion, detachment, dispersal, modesty, contentment, frugality, effort, and solitude. And so we study these, we remember these, dispassion, detachment, dispersal, modesty, contentment, frugality, effort, and solitude. We feed this data in. It's like this is educating our hearts and minds with regards to Dhamma. With regards to mathematics, I do remember going to school and learning my times tables. Two, one's a two. Two, two's a four. (laughs) I did learn my times table. Now, that's important. We build that structure, and it helps us in everyday life, you know, learning how to measure things and get around in the material world. If we want to get around in the inner world, on the level of consciousness, where we train ourselves with the 37 bodhipakya dhammas, like the five spiritual faculties. Sadha, virya, sati, samadhi, pani. What is sadha? What is faith? What is trust? How does it work and how does it balance out against discernment, panya? And what is the function of sati in the middle there, overseeing this balance? And then this very our energy, and then this samadhi, collectedness. How does sati oversee the balance of these two elements? This is, we feed the data in, we feed the information, and then we, we feel into it. And that's where we're taking the practice deeper. Letting go of the initial level of contemplation, the thinking about the five spiritual faculties, or you know, these other teachings that the Buddha gave, and learning to let go of thinking about them and, and then receive them into open-hearted awareness. Receive experience and sense our way around experience. It's, it's very different. It's important. I'm emphasizing this because a lot of people are so enamored with their capacity to think that they, they try and solve every problem by thinking. Where sometimes stopping thinking is exactly the right thing to do. Somebody I know who's um, helping us out at the moment, who's built, rebuilding our monastery website, and he was describing how when he, he comes across a particular complex issue, instead of trying to sort it out, he just parks it and then does nothing about it. Maybe he meditates, maybe he goes for a walk, I don't know what he does. However, he doesn't try and solve it until the solution appears. Not doing anything about it can be the right thing to do about it. I'm saying this is ways of alluding to this idea of appreciative awareness or unitive intelligence as a really important part of our practice. We come back to our senses, not just thinking. Like those of you that cook food, how do you know if you're preparing a dal? How do you know if you've put enough cardamom in it, 
Is there enough? Or is there enough salt? Or too much? How do you know? You don't look up the recipe book. You taste it. You take it and you taste the, the dal. And is, it, is there enough? And you, it's thinking is not actually relevant in that situation. And so it is with a lot of our suffering in life. Thinking is, that's very initial. That's the handshake. It's not the conversation. It's important to start with a handshake, and then you move into the conversation. We start with a study of Dhamma, then we move into a, a sensing, feeling into our hearts. What is my relationship with fear? Can I feel fear in a way whereby I'm free to feel fear and around fear and examine my relationship with fear? Is there an open-hearted receptivity to fear, or is there a contracted, closed fear of fear, which is very normal, or anger, or sadness, or anything else that we are suffering over? To investigate dukkha, can we exercise attention in a way whereby we can feel what we feel without adding anything to it and without taking anything away from it? Just appreciate it for what it is. Maybe hearing me say that, you you wonder, well, what good's that going to do? And well, my encouragement would be to try it out. And thank you very much for taking your attention. Can I, um,